Welcome to The Sale Ring, a podcast dedicated to real estate brokers, agents, and America's top auctioneers that keep the markets moving. Join your hosts, Sean and Trina, as they talk with most successful realtors, marketing and technology experts, investors, and influencers. This show is devoted to all industry professionals looking to up their game and stay up to date. Welcome to The Sale Ring. We got a great show for you today, ladies and gentlemen. We've got Corky Hurd in the studio with us, Trina. Yeah. We got an exciting show about antiques. Are you ready to talk about the antique and collectible market? I am so ready for antique talk. Corky, how are you today? I am great. How are you guys? Man, we are awesome. And thank you, by the way, for joining us in the studio. We appreciate it. Gorky and I have known each other for several years, and he's got uh, kind of an illustrious background, if you will, in the auction business as well as the antique business. An illustrious I like that. Yeah. Illustrious. I (laughs) like Something else to add to your bio. I I looked (laughs) that up on on Google. I Googled that, and that said that was the appropriate (laughs) word to use for Mr. Hurd. Let's talk a little bit about Corky Hurd. Corky, you live in Clinton, Oklahoma. You're from Clinton, Oklahoma, and and I know that you've raised your family down there. You own an office, a real estate and an auction office. And you're currently the president of the Oklahoma State Auctioneers Association. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes, sir. Great organization. How long have you been in the auction business? Matter of fact, not to interrupt you, but I believe you were once president of the Oklahoma Auctioneer Association too, correct? I was. I was. We won't say what year that was. That was a long time ago. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we were talking about antiques, are we not? (laughs) All right. Touche. This is going to be a great show. (laughs) Uh, Well, so how long have you been in the auction business? I actually got in the auction business myself in approximately 2003 when I went to Missouri Auction School, but actually was around the auction business and putting on auctions much earlier than that. And that actually started in the early 90s when I first started doing some auctions. And that's there in Clinton, Oklahoma. Is that where you're from? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah, I knew you lived there now, and I believe you told me one time that you had raised your family and uh, your parents were from there. So that's a small part of the world. It is small part. We're Western Oklahoma, about 80 miles west of Oklahoma City, right on Interstate 40. Pretty much lived here my entire life. I did leave during college, went to school at the University of Nebraska for a short time on a wrestling scholarship and tore up my knee and came back and finished at Southwestern Oklahoma State University where I met my wife and got married right out of college and moved to Oklahoma City for a short time and then got to come back. So been here ever since. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I've been to your office and I've been to Clinton, Oklahoma and took the city tour, if you will. Went through the Route 66 Museum there. And and Ah. it's just it's an interesting community. It's an interesting town. In fact, I'd like to talk more about that, about that museum as we get into the show. But so the reason we have Corky on the show and talking about antiques, collectibles, memorabilia, you have a, a history, a, a past out there with your family and, and more so Skip, your father, which I believe your father's past, correct? Yes. Yes. So prior to that, you and your father would travel. And what brought this up, I was watching television the other night, reruns, I'm sure, but American Pickers, <laughs> you know, the, the show that's on television, going out on the farms and, and picking or taking items, you know, and, and paying for them, obviously. 
that's not a new concept. That's something that's been going on in, in the United States and, and in these small rural markets for a lot of years. Corky and his dad were kind of the a forerunner to that, as, as were many. Am I stating that correctly? That's correct. We started doing that way back. And it's kind of interesting. When I got married and moved to Oklahoma City, that was in, uh, I'm going to tell off on myself now, that was in 1987. And that was right when the oil and gas market here in Oklahoma had really taken a dive. Penn Square Bank had failed and the real estate market was just, uh, I mean, it was awful. Mm -hmm. And so when we got uh, out of college, there wasn't much real estate selling here. And so we moved to Oklahoma City for a little while and lived over there. And one weekend, my wife and I went to a garage sale and we bought a Vendo 39 Coke machine. And that's a specific type of old nickel Coke machine. And so that was on Saturday. And so on Monday, I just happened to call my dad and I said, you'll never guess what I did this weekend. He goes, well, you'll never guess what I did. Well, we had bought that Vendo 39 Coke machine in Oklahoma City. That same weekend, he bought a Vendo 39 Coke machine in Clinton, Oklahoma. Oh, that's crazy. How weird was that? Yeah. And so when we got to move back later that year, the next year, that's kind of where we got started, just kind of evolved into a passion. And the um, real estate market wasn't great, but I came back, started selling real estate. My wife started teaching school and we were doing a lot of court appraisals back in the day when you did little court appraisals for all the foreclosures and so on. And for 50 bucks a pop or whatever they were, well, my dad and I, we put that money back and we called it our mad money. And that's what we started buying antiques and collectibles with. And eventually got up, we had over 120 different soda machines. 120 soda machines? Yes. Coke, Pepsi, lots of different ones. That's a lot of Vendo so, 39s. <laughs> Vendo 39s, Vendo 81s, and just all sorts of... You had all the Vendos. <laughs> We had uh, had lots of different machines. So, yeah, it was pretty cool. And like you were saying with the American Pickers, we started traveling all over the United States. And there was a lot of other people that were doing that also. But we'd go different towns and communities and ask around. Sometimes we would uh, run an advertisement prior to being there that we're going to be there during this time. And this is what we're looking for. And we just hunted the stuff up and picked it up. Oh and bought, sold, and traded it and did that all over the United States. I never realized that that was a real thing. Like, I realized that people did that, but I just thought it was more like a community-based thing. Like, they just went around the communities near them. I didn't realize it was a national thing like it is on that show. That's kind of cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was fun. We had a blast doing it. Let me ask you a question about that. And what year was this? Give me a time frame. Well, we started doing that in about 1988, 89. And so we did that all the way through the 90s and up into uh, 2000 and 2001. So let's say in 1980, a Vendo, I believe you said a Vendo 39 Coke machine. What would you pay for that on the farm? And what did the resale look like back then? Back then, a lot of times you could find them for $25 to $50, $75, $100. And on up. And, you know, as time got on, they got to a point there in the mid to late 90s where they really got popular and got uh, really hot. 
and the prices started escalating and so on. How long so, would you typically have you, to hold one of those machines before you could resell it? We could sell them as fast as we could get them. Mm-hmm. And what we did at first is we just started collecting. And we kind of turned out, we started buying some signs and looking around. I mean, we were still finding stuff on, you know, old diners or little uh, restaurants out in the country. And we were buying gas pumps and gas globes and oil and gas signs and the uh, dealership signs that, mm-hmm. you know, we're still finding them up in these smaller communities and we're hunting down the owners and buying them. And so that's what we did for quite some time. And we never sold anything. We just bought. And then in the early 90s, so we did that for, say, four or five years. And then in the early 90s, right along in there, at some time, we decided, okay, we've got a building full of this stuff, and we really enjoy it. And so let's sell some of it and then go do it again. And And so that's, that's what we did. We had more fun, what I call on the hunt. Yeah. And looking for the stuff and dealing for it and getting it than we did actually owning it. Yeah, it's like a scavenger hunt, basically. Sounds like fun. It was. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And we had all sorts of things. On the soda machines, I bought this. And of course, there's guys that picked that up. And we had people that were calling us and selling us things. And so you constantly had people, which you call pickers, that were finding stuff. And all they're doing is trying to flip it and make a buck. And the longer you're in it, the more advanced you get. And then the higher the items that you get, you get better quality and nicer stuff. And so, yeah, it was fun. That's pretty cool. So late 80s, into the 90s, then at some point you transitioned into the auction business. How did that take place? Well, we we held our first memorabilia auction in the early 90s. And so what we did, we had over 600 dealership and soda signs, all sorts of just really nice porcelain advertising signs and tin and and soda machines. And that was in the early 90s. And I had met an auctioneer that had done a small gun auction for us. And we set everything up and did all the marketing, all the advertising, and they just came in, their company came in and bid called and clerked and provided the ringman. So what was interesting, a little side note about it was, was we're doing this sale and this gentleman says, you know, I really think that we're going to need another auctioneer. And he said, there's this young auctioneer that he just won the Texas and he did something else. And he said, I'd really like to bring him in for the day. And I said, okay. And so he brought him in. Well, it was Spanky Astor. (laughs) And so Spanky came in and called the sale for us that day. He was one of the bid callers also. And I think his rate was like $700 or $750 that day. And after it was done, I remember my dad saying, well, do you think he was worth the 750 bucks we paid him? It's like, I don't know if he was or not. <laughs> and so it was kind of funny. And Spanky remembers calling the sale. He remembers all the signs and all that. We've talked about it several times, but that's kind of how we did that. And so for about 10 years, we would just have an auction company come in and we would uh, host the sale. We'd do everything, set it all up. And they just came in and kind of did that. And so in 2001, we were getting ready for a sale in June of that year. And I had decided that I was going to go to auction school later that year in September, November, whenever it was. And so anyway, we're getting ready for this sale. 
and my father had a uh, heart attack and died. And I buried him, and a couple of days later, we had a two-day sale. And we didn't have a choice. We'd advertised nationally and had people coming in from all over and you know, couldn't get the word out or anything else. And so we went ahead and had the auction. And that's kind of when I walked away, so to speak, from the memorabilia business. He and I had done that together, and we really enjoyed that. And so I just kind of walked away from it. And was kind of out of the auction business for a little bit. And then in 2003, I decided I wanted to get back in it. I missed it. And so I went to auction school, got out. And fast forward to today, we've got a great real estate and auction business. And so that's kind of how it turned out. Well, we'll talk a little bit more in this show about the scarcity of those antiques and collectibles today and and some of the reasons why, you know, versus back in the uh, 70s and the 80s and the 90s. Let me back up just a second. So anywhere, those Vendo Coke machines, the pop or soda machines, you could pick those up as cheap as 25 to $50, maybe up to a couple hundred dollars. If you were to find those out on the farm today, is there still market demand for those, that specific thing? And what would you expect to pay off of the farm for it today? How much has that market moved? The market's moved quite a bit. It's been so long that I've seen one out in what I call the wild that's in an old country store or on the farm or something like that. You just don't see them anymore or very rarely. It's been years since I've seen one out like that. Most of them have been consumed up into somebody's collection or something like that. But, you know, those uh, got up there to several thousand dollars at some point. And they, it's like anything on the collectibles. They kind of go up and down at times, but they're still a really good market for them. And they, uh, they definitely, definitely changed. But uh, we would pick those up. And like I said, for $50, dollars $125, $125, we'd take them to a, a show or a swap meet or something like that. And we'd sell them for four to five, six hundred dollars, eight hundred dollars, just as fast as we could get them. You know, it's interesting because we're talking about the difference in 20 to 25 years, you know, over the course of those years. I went probably about three years ago to an auction over by Topeka and there was a pop machine. It didn't appear to be reconditioned. If it was, it wasn't in recent years, but it worked. You could plug it in. It would still cool. And it was one of the shorter ones, not the the tall skinny, but kind of the shorter round topped. I'm not real well versed in the models, but it's fairly popular. You've seen a lot of those 10 cent machines around, right. you know, in stores and, and in places where they display them. But I want to say that brought close to $2,000. It was uh, $1,800, $1,900 uh, at the auction. And, you know, 25 years ago, you could buy those off the farm, as you said, for two or $300. So that market, in my opinion, had grown dramatically. And I was just kind of curious if you'd seen the same thing. Oh, yeah, definitely. And it's very dependent upon the models. And there was a time there that they got so hot, it didn't matter if it had red paint on it, Coca-Cola or soda related. I mean, it didn't matter. Mm -hmm. You could sell it like crazy. And then it kind of cooled off just a little bit. They're still very popular, but there were different brands. I mean, there was uh, Vendo, Vendolator, you had Cavalier, Westinghouse, and and so on. And then they had different models within that. And it's just like a car or anything else. There was a Vendo 44. Well, that was a real skinny, narrow machine. They were small and they got really popular and they were really expensive for a while. And I mean, four or $5,000. And then you had a Vendo 81 
and they had embossed machines and machines that were just painted on the whatever the soda brand was, different things. And so there was variations in them that were made different models be worth quite a bit more. For example, I bought a Royal Crown Vendo 81 that was embossed. And I bought it, matter of fact, from a guy in Enid, Oklahoma, who you would know. And he came through Clinton one day and he stopped and, uh, or he called, I don't really recall now. And he said, Hey, he said, I just picked up a really neat machine. And he was telling me about it. And I thought, man, I, I've read something somewhere that's fairly rare, but I didn't know how rare. And so we talked about it a little bit and I asked him what he wanted. And I think he told me 750 or $800, which was pretty good price at that time. But anyway, so I made a trip, I think the next day to Enid and walked around, looked at some of his other stuff. He showed me the machine and I liked to pass out when I saw what it was and, and the condition that it was at and just kept on walking. So then he got to where he was trying to sell me the machine. And so I wound up and bought it for 750 or $800, got it back and then started doing some research and talked to a guy that had written a book about it, so on. But come to find out of the embossed RC81 machines, they only made 200. And that was one of the 200. And out of the 200, I can't recall now, but there were very few that were documented and known to exist. And I turned around and sold it within six months because I was going to keep it. And then the money got up there so high, I just couldn't. And if I remember right, I think I got 12000 or $12,500 for that oh, machine. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. It was crazy. But, and that was just because of the rarity of it. Yeah. Scarcity and just, and you just know, a few you, of them in existence and nobody knows really where, you know, they're all at. So, yeah. But, and it, and someone had bought it and brought it to this guy and he bought it from them and, and it came out of Oklahoma here somewhere. So interesting though. You know, before we move on with the auction business and talking a little bit about your current auctions, you know, things that you're doing now, when I was in Clinton, one of the places that you recommended that I go through is the Route 66 Museum. I think you and your dad, I'm reading some notes here ahead of the show that we'd written down that you and, and Skip had, you know, collected and, and were good supporters of that. You had donated a lot of memorabilia to Route 66, and that was highly interesting. I've still got some photos that I kept, you know, from that, pictures we took and, and just some memorabilia from there. But that was a great trip. Thanks. Yeah, it's a really, really neat museum. We had an old Plains historical type museum where it's at. And so we were into the memorabilia and we were traveling around. And of course, we were very familiar with Route 66. And so we just thought, here we are, Clinton. We're right on Route 66. We've got a lot of history with Route 66 with businesses and so on that started here. So we started working, trying to get the uh, tourism department to recognize that and promote that. And this was, of course, you know, in the early 90s. And we worked on that for quite some time, kept working on it with some other people. And finally, it kind of evolved into the historical department or historical society getting involved and then it becoming what it is today. And so we did, along with a lot of other people, we donated memorabilia. Then once they got started, we helped them acquire memorabilia to put in their signs and different things like that. But it's a super cool facility. And there's visitors that come now from all over the world. 
and lots of people from Germany and, you know, different countries like that that come in and grow through it because it's really, really neat. So out of everything that you donated to the Route 66 Museum, what stands out? Do you have any piece that's kind of your crown jewel piece that you had donated or came across? Well, one that we, uh, we found for them and bought and acquired and brought back and then they purchased it from us that was a dinky diner. A dinky um, diner. A dinky diner. Nice. Do what? I, said, I just said nice. <laughs> I've never heard of yeah. a dinky diner. <laughs> I can imagine what it is, but I had never heard it. Said That's a like fancy that. name. It's a fancy name. Yeah. Some of them were called Valentine Diners. Valentine. Uh, a lot of them called Dinky Diner. And they were small, little roadside diners. And you've probably seen them at some point in time, but they were all metal construction, portable that they would bring in and set up and you'd walk in the front door and you literally, they had different sizes of them, but uh, most of them had five or seven counters, I believe, little bar stools there. And it was just a little cafe where they got. They were in different communities around. There used to be quite a few of them. We actually found this one in Shamrock, Texas. And we were cruising the town one time and it was back in somebody's backyard and had been moved back in there. And so we got to inquiring about it and finally got it bought and brought back to Clinton. And then the uh, museum purchased it from it and then they totally restored it. And it's on display outside of the museum now. So it's really cool. Sounds pretty cool. Very cool. I got to check that out. The Dinky Diner, I'll bet there's um, there's a lot of history, you know, on the Internet. So I'm sure a guy can come across those. And I've seen it uh, when I was out there. Stainless steel. Wasn't there something tied in with that with the railroad? Maybe they were located close to railroads? Sometimes some of them were uh, close to railroads. I don't remember. At one time, I actually knew the uh, history. And if I remember right, I think... The Valentine Diner was built in Wichita, Kansas. I think originally they may have produced those up until the maybe the 60s or the 70s, the Valentine Diner. And there's still quite a few of them that are around in different areas, but it's they're pretty cool. They really are. So, so Corky, um, I got to ask you, this is not the first time we've talked about Route 66 on this show. Sean previously discussed a museum up in Iowa. Is, was it in Iowa? World's largest things. Oh, yeah. Museum. Yeah. <laughs> Have you a, been to that museum? That was a great show. <laughs> Sean likes all the Route 66 attractions. I do. I, you know, I'm a good, I'm, I'm a history I, buff. You know, as you get out and drive this country and, and that is... That thoroughfare, the Route 66 that ran from, help me out with that, Corky, from Chicago to... Chicago, L.A. Yeah, to L.A., LA. Yeah. Chicago to L.A. Yeah. Just so many, those those huge signs, you know, the old billboard advertising and, and the large uh, signs that were out in front of the lodges, the travel lodges or um, drive-in theaters, you know, these restaurants. I mean, what what a great era in this country. And and I'm, you know, I just, I love that stuff. I love surrounding myself with that stuff and learning about it. That's why this Valentine Diner, I'm, I'm sitting here while we're on the show. I'm, I'm, I checked on Google and I found a place. Where's it talk about? Kansaspedia, the Kansas Historical Society has got a great write-up in here about Valentine Manufacturing Incorporated that made these diners. So, when this show's over, I will sit here and read all of this about those diners because <laughs> I'm intrigued about it now. 
<laughs> well, it is pretty amazing. And when you talk about, you know, we're in a living in a world right now that in the last five years, 10 years, 20 years, we've seen so much change mm-hmm. with technology and so on. But when you look at Route 66, when that highway system went in, that was at a pivotal time in our nation. And people really started traveling more and going places. And so when Route 66 was finished through there, that's why there's such a um, love affair, I think, with that, because it represents people that were taking family vacations and they were going places and going down Route 66 and all these little mom and pop diners and little lodges and the tourist attractions and tourist traps and all of these things. And it's a pivotal time in our nation. And of course, now we take it for granted with all of the highway systems that we have. But prior to Route 66 along in there, if you wanted to travel across the country, it was tough. It was not easy. And you had a lot of dirt roads and different things like that. And of course, then, um, you know, that came along. And so people were able to travel easily. And it just, uh, it was a pivotal time. Well, it's definitely an interesting museum. If I think there's several of those as you go across the country, as Corky just mentioned, from Chicago all the way to L.A., there are spots where they have, obviously, they disbanded parts of the, the Route 66, but you can still see some memorabilia. Clinton, Oklahoma's got a great museum for it. Corky, we're going to yep. slip away real quick here from our sponsors. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Stay tuned. Are you looking for heavy equipment but unsure where to start? Then you need to check out AuctionTime.com. Find great equipment has never been easier than bidding online at AuctionTime.com. What are you waiting for? Online auctions are closing every Wednesday. So register and start bidding today. AuctionTime.com, the way to buy heavy equipment. Crude oil, natural gas, coal. Buying and selling minerals is a breeze when you have the right energy professionals on your team. Mineralmarketing.com is a leading resource for America's mineral owners. Whether you're wanting to lease or sell your mineral rights, Mineral Marketing has you covered. Mineralmarketing.com, the oil and gas marketplace. Thinking about selling a real estate investment but worried about the taxes you'll have to pay? Property owners just like you have solved their tax issue with a Starker Services 1031 exchange. One call could save you a fortune in taxes. Call Starker Services today at 800-332-1031 or visit online at www.starker.com and keep the tax dollars working for you. Ever dream of owning a country estate, historic home, or lakefront property? Log on to unitedcountry.com. Would you like to retire to a home built on breathtaking acreage in the mountains? Unitedcountry.com. Ever dream of your own private hunting preserve? unitedcountry.com over 30,000 farm recreational and lifestyle properties are just a click away helping people find their american dream for over 90 years we will help you find yours log on now to unitedcountry.com and find your freedom and we're back inside the sale ring we've got corky heard from clinton oklahoma in the studio with us we're talking about antiques collectibles memorabilia 
portions of days gone by, right? And we had a great discussion uh, on the first part of this show about, um, obviously, Corky and and his father and American Pickers. And and these guys were kind of some of many of the forerunners to that, uh, going out and gathering up that memorabilia off the farm. It's become scarce. It's harder to get a hold of that today. And I'd like to talk a little bit about that, Corky, and, and why that's transitioned so much, where consumers are getting a lot more information. They're, they're getting more self-aware, self-educated about property that uh, items that may be worth some money and why they may not be coming back on the scene as prevalent as they were 25, 30 years ago. You're exactly right. And it's definitely changed. And what's changed about it, in my opinion, is the internet came into play. Mm-hmm. And when the internet really came in, it kind of leveled the playing field, if you would think about it that way, where years ago, you might have a antique mall or an antique shop. And so if you were looking for something, that's probably where you would go locally or somewhat regionally. And so if you had an item that was maybe uh, rare regionally right there, it may have not been so rare back east or somewhere. And so you had the really good antique shop owners and antique mall owners and so on that would travel far distances and pick stuff up and bring it back and then sell it locally for maybe an inflated price. But as the internet came in, it kind of leveled the playing field because it opened up the market to a vast area. And so what was maybe rare here in Clinton, Oklahoma, in Pennsylvania was not rare at all. And so it leveled out those prices and you got uh, a more even playing field. And if you look at the number of antique malls there used to be compared to now and antique shops, I mean, it's down drastically. When you mentioned the Internet becoming available, obviously the Internet. So it's continuing to grow and evolve with data. Yeah. New things. Just like I went and looked at, at Valentine Diners, and here's all this information about Mr. Valentine and how he created these and where they were, you know, developed and sent out across the U.S., how the name change came about. But that information wasn't going to be in there when the Internet was first launched. What is, in your opinion, early on, what was a software program or a company that was on the internet that really kind of revolutionized that to educate the consumers about uh, a transactional marketplace online that would let them know what a probable value was? Yeah, I would definitely say that eBay, when Mm -hmm. eBay came into existence and really started getting popular, it changed things. And eBay has evolved over the time that it was. But when eBay first came around and we started using eBay way back. My dad was not a computer guy and he's like, you know, that's a computer thing. It's nothing but for games and so on. And so, but I was insistent and I got that and started putting things on eBay and then he was fascinated with it. Mm-hmm. What was interesting in the original, you know, when we first started, we could put a hundred signs or whatever it was on eBay and we would sell 90, 95 of them, just like that. And then when I finally quit selling anything on eBay, it was about the opposite. We'd put 90 or 100 things on, and we would be lucky if we sold four or five of them. At the price but that you were first, asking for it. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. and it, But it was all new. It was leveling the playing field. People could look and find things that they had never seen before. and But that volume of 
items that have come on there. And it, it's definitely, that was, in my opinion, that was definitely a pivotal time and a changing point was when eBay first really launched and for the first, mm-hmm. you know, years of eBay's existence. Yeah. And I mean, just, I actually grew up in the 90s, but just somebody that used to watch Antiques Roadshow with my dad and stuff like that, it's, it is pretty amazing that in the mid, in the early 90s, you heard people all the time finding things in grandma's attic and all of that stuff. And now you don't hear about that kind of stuff unless it's, you know, a Van Gogh hidden away somewhere or something. You don't hear it anymore because people just already know what they have and it's so easily available to find out what it is and whether it's worth anything. So it's interesting. That's definitely true. I mean, people have the ability now, if they want to and they choose to take yeah. the time to do that, I mean, with Google image search and different things like that that you can do now, they can be very knowledgeable and they know what they have and what they could potentially get out of it and how they can market it sometimes even. Well, that too, as you mentioned before, has kind of leveled the playing field of being able to buy things wholesale, you know, um, to to acquire them on the farm and then sell them at a retail price. It's, It's led all of the the individuals that own those on the farm out there become the retailer, you know, mm-hmm. and they, they have the right. market is in front of them. And as we talk about that, I know that you're big into art glass auctions. That's one of the things that you uh, had brought up to me before in our conversations that you conduct art glass auctions and uh, live events, live auction events. But I think even that's transitioning with the advent of, oh. of internet auctions now. Definitely. We started about 10 years ago doing a uh, art glass auction and and the uh, gentleman that I do those for he was uh, based out of Chicago and then he's since moved to Dallas just uh, recently but he had been a cataloger for years and had cataloged for a lot of the bigger auction houses and so he wanted to kind of get out on his own start doing that we had a connection that somebody knew me and recommended me as an auctioneer and so we've kind of got to doing that for him it's quite interesting. The uh, art glass auction, I didn't know anything about it. I still don't know a whole lot about it, but the uh, Stubin, Tiffany, there's several others, you know, that are out there, but uh, a lot of people have known and heard about Tiffany glass. But a few years ago, you could take a, say, let's say for instance, a Tiffany salt, which is a little bitty small piece of Tiffany glass that they would put salt in and it might've sat on the table or something like that. And so we might sell those as fast as we could sell them for $1,200. Today, you're probably fortunate if you can get two or $300 out of them. And so it has transitioned the market. But what we've done and watched also over the last 10 years is the majority of the people in that market, not all, but the majority of them are aging. And you're seeing the majority of them in their 60s and 70s and so 80s. It's going to be a new surge so of those, sales. That's cool. Yeah. So they're starting to get rid of their collections. They've maybe collected it all these years. And we don't have the younger generations that are coming up that are collecting this. And so you're starting to see some slippage in the market in different sectors. Now, we still have some rare items that bring really good money and set some great prices. But it's definitely changed over the years. The last auction that we did in Dallas that uh, was about four months ago or so, we had approximately 40 people in the room and we had over 400 online from all over the United States and overseas. 
So to make sure that everybody, make sure that everybody caught that metric, 40 people in the room and 400 online are the approximate numbers. That's the shift of the people that would have been live on site at an auction, or at least a good proportionate share of them that now have the convenience of bidding on the internet and seeing and, and everything that's going on, being part of the live auction, if it's being broadcasted or simulcasted. So that, again, that's, there's transition, there's change in the auction industry. Right. And it's definitely changed. And the reason that we still hold an online or I mean a a live auction instead of just online only is we have clients that come in and physically inspect the items during the preview and then fly home and then bid online. It's crazy. This uh, last time we had a couple of guys that flew in, looked at all of the items, made all of their notes the day before, then they flew home and then they bid over the next two days, you know, at their office or at their house. And we have people that come in and look at the stuff and then they go back to work and they may only be working a mile down the road, but then they're bidding online. They don't have to sit there all day. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely changed the whole aspect of it. And But we still have a live event because, one, we feel like it legitimizes the business and what they can see and look at and that, that those people still like to come feel and touch it and look at it. But a lot of them don't either. A lot of them just look at it online. Do you feel like the business is going to evolve into 100% online in the future? Or is this going to become kind of the new norm for quite a while? I don't see it evolving into 100% online. I think it's going to take quite some time. Now, I say that because the old there's still a segment of the population that don't know or like or trust technology that like to buy things. But the younger people that are growing up with this, they don't know any different. You know, my daughter, she's 28 and I've got another one that's uh, 21. They don't know life without a computer. They don't know life without a phone and Google. I mean, they don't know what yellow pages are. They Google (laughs) everything and look at it. And so as time goes on, I see a definite transitioning and It'll definitely be interesting to see how it plays out. I think what's unique about the auction industry, no matter what segment that you're in, there's very unique sets of circumstances that are hard to solve online, whether that be in a real estate transaction or it be in a item that you're selling that people want to feel and touch and look mm-hmm. at before they bid. And so I, it's hard for me to imagine that it goes 100% online or totally automated and totally takes out the auctioneer. But I don't know, it'll be definitely interesting. The way technology is moving so fast and so rapidly that it's definitely interesting. Trina, do you buy online? You catch yourself buying a lot of stuff online or do you like to go to the store and actually shop? It depends on what it is. I mean, if it is a cast iron skillet, for instance, I'll buy that online, but I'm not going to buy a new sweater online because I want to try it on and feel it and see, you know, what kind of condition it's in and what the seams look like, make sure it's not a piece of junk. So you don't want to try out the cast iron skillet for weight and balance. No. In my house, we call that marriage counseling, a cast (laughs) iron skillet. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's uh, that's definitely true. I'd say it's about 50-50. I'm really most excited about online shopping for groceries. 
to be honest with you. If I never have to step foot in a grocery store again, my life is complete. So I'm That's pretty happy about that. Yeah. You know, out of everything that consumers can buy online, that is the least thing I would think of for myself of thinking of shopping online that was shipped to my door is my groceries. Because you want to pick out your own lettuce and all that. And I mean, really, lettuce isn't, you know, there's not a lot of fruits and vegetables nowadays at the store that are bad. So you can pretty much rest easy around shopping for groceries. I appreciate the fact that you're looking at me right now and you assume I eat a lot of lettuce. That makes me feel really good. I feel super confident. On that <laughs> well, you know what I mean, produce. <laughs> High fat yeah, diet. I, I'm just, I'm just like you, Sean. I can't, I can't quite put myself out there to order my groceries. But, you know, a few years ago, I'm kind of funny. I've sold on eBay and done all that for years. I rarely buy anything online. And then I started picking up a few things on Amazon that I couldn't Uh find locally. And if I ordered it, it was going to take two weeks. And so I got on Amazon and well, found it and it was here in a couple of days. And so it's kind of changed me a little bit, but I still have a hard time buying my groceries. I'm afraid that Amazon's going to spoil us all. It is super, super convenient to buy on there and have that shipped to your house in a day or two. Yeah. And it's super fast. And yeah, it's definitely interesting. Corky, so in the antique collectible memorabilia marketplace, are you still seeing quite a bit of that come through the door as a professional auction company? I understand you're also in real estate, which I'm going to make the assumption that you do a fair amount of clearing houses, household contents. Do you still see some, you know, memorabilia, collectibles, things coming in the door? We do. We see a little bit of it, but not the way it used to be. And I think a lot of the better collections and collectibles have been consumed up. Now, I do think some of that's going to be coming down the pike in the near future. Just because of the aging population and you're seeing those groups starting to scale down and get rid of things. And so I think we're going to see more of it. But no, not as much as we used to, at least in our area. But you have to think about Oklahoma. We are a fairly new state compared to the rest of the country. And a lot of our people, when they came and they migrated west, and when Oklahoma was opened up in the early, you know, 19, I think we were state 1903, 1908. Now I'm going to get my history lesson here. But when we uh, opened up, they were living out here in smaller homes, and we didn't have major rivers for large amounts of furniture and things to be brought in. And so you didn't have a lot of grand old homes. And so we just don't see as much of it out in our area. I remember my grandmother telling me one time that Oklahoma pushed hard for prohibition because they were running out of furniture. (laughs) (laughs) People were getting drunk and busting Uh, up the furniture. So they said, no more drinking for a while. We got to get caught up. There you go. We have nothing to set on no, it's, that's right. It, I think, I think uh, at, at a bare minimum, there's a generational change. We've seen this in the automobile industry for classic cars and, and kind of what the hot market is. You know, 30 years ago, when I got into the auction business, Model A's, Model T's, you still had a buying audience out there that from the late 20s, 30s, they kind of remember those cars and there was a, a strong market for them. And you would have six, seven, maybe 10 people standing around at the auction waiting on that Model A or Model T or, you know, some type of a, a model of that kind of a car sale. Right. They were going to participate on it. Today, you can buy those things for a song. You you can buy them for next to nothing. 
But that age, that sociodemographical age is now in the 50, well, 60s, you know, late 50s, 60s, 70s. And, you know, common sense is if you look at where somebody typically gets in their life, kids get raised, they're out of college, you're starting to put a little bit of extra money away, you have some disposable income, you can go back and buy the things that were important to you as a child or that you liked. And they may have even been a little bit earlier than your childhood, but they're not 30 years or earlier than your childhood. Right. You know, it's within that 10-year, 15-year swing, and that's the that's the market. So the right. primitives and collectibles, uh, daisy butter churns, you know, um, what do they call the, the, the cutters, the cabbage cutters and the washboards and things that our grand folks grew up around. Hold on. There, there Did was you say washboards? Washboard. Thank washboard. you. <laughs> washboard. My mother always said fish instead of fish. <laughs> Let's go cook some fish. I had to break in there. Sorry. But you saw a large audience 30 years ago for those items and primitives and collectibles at these farm sales. And today they're setting everywhere in antique stores, not being purchased by the average consumer. You know, it's uh, they're looking at things that they grew up around. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely changed. Well, they they say, and I'm probably going to get the numbers wrong, but I believe it's like from nine to 14, right in there. What Whatever is popular during that time period when you're from age nine to age 14, when you get old enough where you have that disposable income, that's what you're going to collect typically. (laughs) So whether it's vehicles or whatever, that's what you're going to collect. Now there are, you know, exceptions to that. I have one daughter who loves the old stuff because she grew up around it. She went with us collecting it and so on, and she's got it in her home. My younger daughter, she likes some of it, but not as much as the older one, but they grew up around it. You take some of the other that are her age and all, they don't care about it. I mean, it doesn't do anything at all for them. So yeah, it's definitely generational. And sometimes it comes back into vogue and comes back into style. You know, I think right now there's kind of a movement in Europe that I was reading where some of the more quality pieces of furniture are starting to come back in and people think that it's, uh, or feel like it's, you know, very good for the environment to buy good quality used furniture because it'll last. And But I haven't seen that over here yet. Well, Corky, I will tell you that this show has been one of one of my personal favorites mm-hmm. because I, I love collectibles. I love antiques and uh, I love the stories that you've told me every time we have a chance to get together. So we want to thank you for your time uh, yeah. and for all of your insight. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Oh, you're... Oh, you're more than welcome. I, I appreciate it. And it is fun. It, you know, I think it's always interesting because in our business, in the auction business, in the no matter what asset class you're selling, whether it's real estate or antiques or, you know, even livestock or collectible cars, doesn't matter. You've always got to keep changing and adapting. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what business you're in. You know, just because you're relevant today does not mean you're going to be relevant tomorrow. Yeah. And so you've got to adapt and look at it. I mean, look at the J.C. Penney's and the uh, Wish Book or Sears and Roebuck, I should say. Look how huge Sears was in the early days. You could buy an entire house on Sears mm-hmm. or a car or anything else. The Wish Book, get anything that you want. Well, they're not really relevant today. But look who's replaced them, and that's Amazon. Amazon is the Sears of the early 1900s. 
So it's interesting. That's a great place to summarize this entire podcast show is Amazon is the new Sears and Roebuck catalog. You couldn't have said it any better. That's uh, that's our new online wish book. Corky, we want to thank you for your time uh, on the podcast show. On behalf of Trina and I, we really appreciate you being on here today. Ladies and gentlemen, this is just one of the, the hundreds of great topics that we've got in store for you in upcoming episodes. So tune back in next time inside the sale ring. This episode has ended, but your journey to greatness continues. To access all resources and links mentioned in today's show, head over to www.thesalering.com now. That's www.thesalering.com.